This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to our teleconference event, an evening with Howard J. Roth. He's the publisher of The Rough Times, a widely acclaimed financial newsletter to which many of you are subscribers, some for more than 30 years. I'm David Wolf, founder of Small Business American Network, and I'm your host for tonight's call. For most of us on the call, Howard Ruff needs no introduction. As subscribers to The Rough Times, you've followed market cycles through his writings and understand the true nature of his work. For more than 30 years, he's helped his subscribers, everyday Americans, learn to navigate the prevailing economic cycles, invest wisely, protect assets, and position themselves to profit, often making sense out of the market noise that can distract us from understanding where and how to invest. Howard, welcome to the call. Thank you. If you would lay the groundwork for this segment, you've been advising and leading everyday Americans with an approach to investing from a foundation built on the principles of Ruffinomics. So let's get down to it. What exactly is Ruffinomics? Well, Ruffinomics is not a school of the economy like uh, libertarianism or capitalism or socialism. Ruffinomics is my own invention, and it's a, it's a program that if you follow... It's for your, your, yourself and your family to help you navigate this very difficult environment. So Ruffinomics will never have uh, academic status, but it will be very, very useful in your life. Thanks for that. You've written that we're heading down a path of inflation and that um, Obamanomics, which is a term you coined to describe our current political economic condition, is creating most, if not all, of this sort of perfect storm. Howard, what key elements are contributing to the threat of inflation or hyperinflation? Well, first, inflation in all times and all places is caused by increasing the amount of currency in, cir in circulation. In other words, it's uh, diluting the value of money by increasing the amount of money. And Obamanomics is based on spending a lot of money and creating it out of nothing and uh, loan either creating it, uh, putting it in circulation either by loaning it out loaning it to the banks so they can loan it out, and eventually yeah. the banks are going to realize they can't just sit on the money and deposit it at the Federal Reserve. They're going to, in order to make money, they're going to have to start lending it out. And when that excess money gets into circulation, especially uh, paying for programs that have no real uh, economic utility, you're going to get inflation. Now, Obamanomics, is, its foundation is printing money. I've been publishing for 34 years. I never thought I'd use the word trillions in my whole life. Yeah. And yet they've, uh, Obama has been creating money by the trillions. And eventually 
It will work its way into the economy, and you will see inflation. Inflation is already starting in some areas. I notice that uh, uh, food prices have risen. The wholesale prices have risen. Uh, oil is going up. The, economic, the, uh, the gasoline is rising. Uh, and inflation doesn't happen all at once with everything. Inflation, the result of monetary inflation, is eventually going to be generalized price inflation. But it doesn't start at all prices all at once. You look for, for signals. And the signals that we're seeing are, are the one that happen to be the signals that affect everyone here with your own personal life. Okay, that's a great segue, Howard. How does the environment we're currently looking at, the one right now compared to that of the 70s, uh, are the same economic and political forces here at work, or are there some differences we should be aware of? Well, the main difference is more, more of a quantity than of kind. Uh, I got very concerned with inflation in the 70s, and so we had my subscribers invest in inflation hedges, which started out being gold and silver, and I expanded a little bit from that. And yeah. uh, because the, uh, under the Carter administration, government spending was out of control, they were putting a lot of money into circulation, and we made a lot of money, but it didn't get out of hand. Uh, Volcker and Reagan were able to get it under control, and uh, by stopping printing money, by stopping government spending. Uh, but the question now, the difference between what we have now and then, is it's beyond the ability of anyone to stop. I don't think anyone can step, uh, step forward and quickly turn it around uh, on a dime, just like uh, Volcker and Reagan did. So the difference is one of quantity and not necessarily of kind. Okay, quantity rather than kind, and the situation is just too large to uh, to manage. Uh, how will inflation or hyperinflation, how does this affect everyday Americans, the folks on this call? Well, I think that's pretty fundamental. I mean, if, if prices are rising, everything you have to buy, the price is going up. And if you don't have an increase in your income accordingly or you aren't invested in inflation hedges that respond to inflation, you're going to be devastated financially. Inflation is always very bad for individuals, particularly the middle class and the people who buy on, and, uh, on a regular basis. For example, uh, every day, the, any store you go to, you buy things that you use on a regular basis, whether it's groceries or whatever it might be, uh, has trucks pull up to the back door and restock the shelves like magic every day. Well, when the price of oil gets up far enough, truckers are gonna, independent truckers especially are going to have trouble buying the gas and the gas or diesel fuel to do it. So we're not going to be able to find the products we want at a price we want as uh, dependably as we have in the past. It starts small and it turn, gets worse and worse. I wanted to um, also ask as a follow-up, this threat of inflation, how does it affect the recommendations you make in the Rough Times newsletter? And uh, does it affect at all the principles themselves of, of how you think about it, uh, rough economics? Well, does it affect the principles? Well, it, it and you, probably not, right? You might, so, define, so how you might define this as a principle. The principle is what do you invest in? There are certain investments that respond directly to inflation, like gold and silver, and the related investments like mining stocks. There are other investments that do well in an inflationary environment uh, that um, make uh, for good investments. But really, I'm much more concerned with letting you protect your wealthier family than I am about making you money and in, uh, in investments. Although we're going to make you a lot of money, we just did a survey of the of the rough times uh, uh, investment menu 
of almost 70 investments, and we were up 79% last year, which is really the first year of Obamanomics. Now, up 79% in a year, that's pretty exciting stuff. And oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. so if you're invested properly, it's going to affect you positively. If you're invested wrongly, it's going to hurt you. For example, uh, most financial advisors uh, in a period of uh, economic difficulty like we're going through are going to suggest very conservative investments, like bonds, for example. Well, bonds are a catastrophe. When interest rates go up and when inflation goes up, interest rates do go up, uh, bond prices go down. So bonds might, you might even uh, get pretty good interest rates, but you lose capital because the bonds are quoted every day in the Wall Street Journal and the price of the bonds is going to go down. That affects everybody who is invested incorrectly. And that's one reason why I want you to be a maverick and avoid the Wall Street herd. Absolutely. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. All right, I did want to shift gears a little bit uh, and talk about the nature of investing. Uh, this is, I'm really referring to the psychology of it. Professional traders out there on Wall Street, they do have the ability to emotionally separate or segregate from the vehicles they invest in or trade. They have this ability, what the pros know how to do. But for the rest of us, it's a very different experience. This inability to emotionally let go, to take losses, or even take profits at the right time can be very challenging for uh, us mortals and can destroy portfolios portfolios or even our confidence to move forward decisively with our own plan. What are some of the most common toxic mistakes you see regular investors or regular people make when they invest? Well, too many financial advisors and brokers will recommend that which they make commissions on. Their financial yep. interest uh, dictates what they tell you to buy. Mm -hmm. so, and, and they get emotionally com uh, committed to that. That doesn't mean that that they're being greedy, that just means that's the way they're conditioned, that's the way they feel, and perhaps sincerely so. But what happens is that uh, uh, as long as they're tied in to conventional wisdom, they're going to lose money, they're going to get hurt. And so the, uh, the most difficult emotional trial for uh, most individuals is going to be leaving the herd and becoming a maverick. When a maverick leaves the herd, they're lonely for a while, but when they find the rest of the herd has been turned into hamburger, they feel better about the whole thing. Yeah. Consequently, the, the very difficult emotional uh, thing here is the willingness to be alone and to zig when everybody else is saying zag. Mm. Okay. Is there a prescription for helping us to avoid these classic toxic mistakes? I know that's kind of a 60,000-foot uh, question, but, but how do we move into the mindset of being the maverick? Well, the, if you're a subscriber to the Rough Times, <laughs> you, you probably are going to be told <laughs> what to do. Uh, I, I'm not interested in just telling people what to do just for the sake of telling them what to do, but I've figured this out, and I've been through inflation before, and I'm one of the older guys in the business, and, I, uh, and I'm not locked into, uh, into conventional wisdom. Uh, I don't, don't listen to Wall Street that much, although I like to know what they're doing. But, right. uh, gee whiz, I, uh, I don't really respect Wall Street that much. But that's all right. They don't respect me that much, so that's, a, that's fair and, enough. And how, I, I wanted to follow that. As I understand it, you did actually have some experience very early in your career on Wall Street, didn't you? That, that helped color your feelings about all of this. Well, I wasn't working on Wall Street. I was working for a, a Wall Street firm. But there you go. My, 
the experience I had, I wasn't making much money because I couldn't recommend what the house wanted me to recommend because That's right. I didn't agree with it. And yeah. because of my philosophy was being formed even when I didn't realize it. Even when I was, didn't realize it was something very fundamental was happening to me. And consequently, yeah. it hurt me. I, I couldn't make a decent living because I couldn't recommend. That was our house recommended. Sometimes they had, the trading department had taken positions and things that they made extra money and they wanted me to sell them. And I just couldn't do that. So yeah. my experience yeah. was uh, uh, very mind-changing for me. It was not only uh, did it hurt my family because I could make enough money, it just told me that I was that uh, Wall Street was on the wrong track. And so consequently, uh, I learned a lot about the business. I learned about how incentives are given to salesmen to sell different things. And I also learned how, uh, how absolutely... Uh, What's the word I want? Impenetrable is the is the yeah. attitude on Wall Street that says these are the way things have always been. Consequently, these are the way things will always be, and that's not the case. I wanted to talk a little bit about personal finances in a family, let's say, or even in a small business. Uh, the subject of debt comes up. Uh, I talk to a lot of small business owners, as do you. What's the difference between good debt and bad debt? How do you characterize those? Well, when I first wrote How to Prosper During the Coming Bad Years, I took it through a dear friend of mine, Ezra Taft Benson, former Secretary of Agriculture, who was also later, later became the president of the Mormon Church, which is my church, and yeah. uh, has always told us to avoid debt. Well, I had a chapter in the book that dealt with good debt and bad debt, so I kind of ran it through him to see how he felt about it spiritually. And here's what I said. I said that good debt is debt which can be used productively and can produce enough revenue to service the debt and retire the debt. Uh, debt is a very useful tool if it's within uh, uh, reasonable bounds. So consumer debt, to buy something that diminishes in value and uh, faster even than you pay it off, that's always bad debt. Good debt is debt which uh, produces revenue that enables you to service and retire the debt. Okay, terrific. Howard, you've written that uh, we should not count on Social Security benefits whatsoever and, and have even called uh, Social Security a government Ponzi scheme, perhaps the biggest scam in the universe, if I have that right. What was the original mission of the Social Security system, and, and how did the U.S. government manage to turn it into such a mess? Well, the original purpose of the Social Security system was to buy votes. That's all it was. <laughs> Wait a minute. How do you mean that? I don't quite understand well, as, as long as people could look forward to getting some money from the government, they would vote for the people who gave them the money. Okay. And that's the true of uh, just about every government program that pays people money. They're, they're nearly all, all vote-buying mechanisms. Consequently, Social Security started out as a vote-buying mechanism. And they, we had all kinds of promises about how cheap it would be and how it would all be self-financing and so forth. Well, that's a bunch of baloney. And it's a Ponzi scheme. You know what a Ponzi scheme is? Ponzi yes. was a guy that uh, brought investors in to invest in heating oil. Supposedly he had big uh, tanks of heating oil. Well, he didn't buy the heating oil, but he paid great dividends by using the money that was brought in by the later investors. So money uh, which was paid out as though it were profits. When it wasn't, it was just new investors coming in. That's a Ponzi scheme. Well, that's what Social Security is. Social Security is funded by... Uh, new people, especially young people, coming into the system and paying into it. So the uh, 
uh, and we, uh, too many people think that that money has been saved for us. The government even maintains the fiction, the fiction that you have so much money in the Social Security system, and you can even find out from them what they think that is. But yeah. the the problem is that as people come, as the number of people that come in the system shrinks, and the number of people needing to draw from the system and retiring grows, uh, the two figures get very much out of balance. Consequently, if you want to be safe, if you want to be reasonable, plan your life if you're over 50, plan your life so you will never see any Social Security, or if you do see it, it won't buy anything. It won't be worth anything. Social Security and Medicare are just guarantees that you're going to drive inflation because they're going to require a lot of printing money. And one of the great lies of government is, oh, this will be self, self-sustaining and it will be cheap. No way. When's the last time you ever heard of a government program that turned out costing less than they said? Right. Also, before uh, we move towards the end of this segment, let's talk a little bit about health care, how it will bring change. I mean, this is, this is a huge, huge deal for so many Americans. What's your perspective on the health care situation? Well, I, uh, frankly, I, I'm, I'm kind of emotionally involved in this because I feel like I have a target on my chest, on my chest just because I'm old. They're going to help, allegedly help pay for, for uh, health care by cutting um, Medicare in half. The funding of Medicare will cut in half. That means they'll have to pay doctors less. More and more doctors will start refusing Medicare patients. And consequently, uh, they'll have to ration the care. And the rationing that's uh, inherent in the, uh, in the uh, Obamacare legislation is going to hurt you someday. You're going to be very surprised to find out your doctor is no willing to take no more longer willing to take care of you, and there are certain things they won't do because they will do a calculation that says you're going to live only three years, and this is going to cost you more money than can be produced in th- those three years. Consequently, the answer is no, we can't do that. So if you're uh, headed for any, uh, as you get older and you're headed for an expensive procedure like a hip replacement, a uh, chemotherapy, uh, a heart transplant, heart uh, uh, heart disease. Yeah. <laughs> the um, the answer will probably be no. We can't. You can't afford that. But here's some pain pills, and you can get end of life counseling. Right. Right. The entrepreneur, Howard, is the guts of America. Entrepreneurs are born for many reasons sometimes out of sheer survival when they're unemployed, um, other times out of a passion they may have or some drive, an inner drive or intensity of vision for something they feel they need to accomplish in their own lives. From your perspective, what makes an entrepreneur an entrepreneur? Well, an entrepreneur, uh, there's a difference between a small businessman and an entrepreneur. A small businessman wants to have a shop of his own. Maybe he wants um, to have a widget shop. Well, the entrepreneur doesn't want the widget shop. He wants to become McWidgets. He, he wants to expand uh, his operation and get bigger and bigger, and he's, he's obsessed with growth and uh, possibly want to take it public to multiply his earnings. Uh, but that's the difference between an entrepreneur and a small businessman. So the entrepreneur is the heart of capitalism because that is what capitalism is. Capitalism is... Uh, is the capitalization of of earnings. You're going to multiply the earnings. Let, let, let's say you have a company that uh, 
makes a hundred thousand dollars a year. Okay. Well, you take that hundred thousand dollars a year, and you decide to sell that's twenty percent stock in your company. Well, what happens is if you sell twenty percent of stock in the company, what's what, how much you're going to charge for it? Well, very very conservatively, it'll be at least five times earnings, maybe ten times earnings, and you'll take in a lot of money, and you will give it away twenty percent of your company, but you will receive back a lot more than 10 to the 10% you gave up. Consequently, yeah. uh, capitalism is the multiplication of the value of earnings, and that is what capital is. Wow, I love that. That's so concise, and I've never heard it said quite that way. It's the multiple. Wow. Okay. I, I, back to the entrepreneur in uh, Howard, the Howard Ruff entrepreneur. Years ago, uh, Willard J. Marriott made a simple observation about you, uh, I wanted to share this with the audience because many of us are small business owners. What did he say to you, and, and, and how did it, and why did it change your whole self-perception about your own professional future? Well, Jay Willard Marriott of, of hotel fame, at the time, uh, only had a restaurant chain, and I, I spent a, a two-year mission. Uh, they sent me to the Heathens, Washington D.C., and that's where he was, and he was a church leader there. And so I went back there to work. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.